0: This language, this string of terms that we have just encountered here, the thunder, the rumblings, the flashes of lightning, earthquake, they appear over and over again in the book of Revelation whenever the final judgment is described. And in fact, slowly that phrase is expanded, growing a little larger with each mention of it. We have a depiction of the final judgment here. God hears the cries of His people and He will judge the wicked on earth from His heavenly throne in due time. And so, notice this. Verses 3-5 through pick up very naturally where the seal cycle left off, providing us with yet another perspective on how things will go for the people of God living on earth in the time between Christ's first and second coming. Will the church suffer tribulation? What is the answer, brothers and sisters? Yes. Nowhere do the Scriptures teach that the church is going to be raptured and out of the tribulation it's contrary to everything we see from Genesis to Revelation the people of God know what it is to suffer on earth they will suffer tribulation but are Christians going to be left alone the answer to that is certainly not they are sealed by God and he hears their prayers will things go on like this forever also also the answer is no Verses 3-5 through five remind us that God will one day respond to the prayers of His people and judge from His holy habitation. Jeremiah the prophet spoke of this day saying, The Lord will roar from on high, and from His holy habitation... Utter his voice, He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 25:30 30 through31. And so verse one of revelation is clearly connected to what has already been revealed in the seal cycle. Notice that particularly the sixth seal. On the earth the wicked cry out, but in heaven there will be what? Silence. And verses 3 through 5 are obviously connected to the seal cycle. What are the people of God doing as they live in the midst of the trials and tribulations described in the first four seals? Where they they're praying, they're crying out to God, and these prayers do indeed reach the ears of God. He hears, and he will one day act raining down fire from the altar, and there will be peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. But but now put your eyes on verse 2. And I want you to notice that it seems really out of place, sandwiched here in between verses 1 and verses 3 through 5, which point backwards to the seal cycle. Instead of looking back to the seal cycle, as verses 1 and 3 through 5 do, Verse 2 points forward to something, namely the trumpet cycle that is yet to come. I mentioned this to my children last night as we kind of read the sermon text, you know, in bed before going to sleep last night. And my daughter looked at me and she said, How many cycles are there? (laughs) I said, Well, actually, there are are three um, seals, trumpets, and bowls. I think she's getting the impression that the only thing she'll ever hear her dad preach on is the book of Revelation. You know, I don't know. There are three cycles in the book of Revelation, uh, seals, and then trumpets, and then bowls, seven in each of these. But notice here in verse two, uh, we have kind of sandwiched in the middle of this sixth or seventh seal uh, a reference to what is going to come later, namely the blowing of seven trumpets. Then I saw, verse two, the seven angels who stand before God. And seven trumpets were given to them, Revelation eighty two. I don't know who these seven angels are. Perhaps they are associated with the angels of each of the churches mentioned at the beginning of the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church of, to the angel of the church of, seven churches, seven angels. But notice this for now. Verse 2 looks forward, whereas verses 3-5 through five look back, bringing the seal cycle to a conclusion. Those who are locked into a chronological and futuristic interpretation of the book of Revelation are particularly troubled by this because it doesn't match chronologically. Uh, There's something going on here that doesn't fit into a chronological interpretation. For shouldn't the events be silence and heaven fire from the altar and then the introduction of the seven trumpets if we're to take things chronologically? But what I want you to get used to, friends, is this idea... If it's not embedded within your heads now, it will never be, I think. But the book of Revelation is not ordered chronologically, but rather thematically. There's a literary structure to this text. I think it's the most helpful structure. Verse 2 functions literarily like a pen does on a hinge. I was going to bring a hinge with me. And it would have been the first time ever in the history of Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church that Pastor Joe used an object lesson. Uh, you know, And I forgot the hinge. You know, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. But think of a hinge. It has three parts to it, doesn't it? It has two arms, little flappers, you know, one t- attaches to the door jam, the other attaches to the door. And then what is the third part of the hinge except the pin that goes in between the both of them? And here's what I want you to visualize I want you to visualize a, a hinge, both the flaps pointing this way. That is back to you, isn't it? Sure. Um, pointing backwards. Verse 1. Revelation 8 points backwards and brings the seal cycle to a conclusion with mention of silence in heaven which is a reference to judgment. Verses 3 through 5 also point backwards bringing the seal cycle to a conclusion with a depiction of the final judgment but stuck in between the two is a pin which points actually forwards and enables the whole thing to swing open eventually. And that's what will happen here as the book of Revelation progresses. Everything will turn on what verse 2 says. It introduces what will come later. And in due time, the hinge will pivot on it, opening up to us an entirely new set of visions introduced by the sounding of the seven trumpets. Look at 8.2. Saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them now, drop your eye down to eight seven the first angel blew his trumpet eight eight the second angel blew his trumpet eight ten the third angel eight twelve the fourth angel with his trumpet nine one the fifth angel nine thirteen the sixth angel, and then what do you know ten one through eleven fourteen we have another interlude just like we saw in the seal cycle a break from uh, the trumpet cycle and then split off from the rest we have finally all the way over in 1115 these words then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and his christ and he shall reign forever and ever in other words the end 1115 How many times have we come to the end already in the book of Revelation by 11.15? At least twice. At least twice. The seal cycle brings us to the end. And then the trumpet cycle brings us to the end again when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. How can you not see that there is not a chronological ordering to the book of Revelation except recapitulation? seal cycle to the end, trumpet cycle to the end, these are both giving us a different vantage point on the same period of time, namely the church age, the time in between Christ's first and second coming. The seal cycle has revealed some things to us, but the trumpet cycle will take us through it again, but show us more truth so that we might live in this age well as God's people. The trumpet cycle does not describe to us something that will happen after the events described in the seal cycle, for how could it Because we have already been brought to the end of time on that last day when the wrath of God and the Lamb have been poured out in the seal cycle. We need to remember these things. Both of these cycles bring us to the end. That is the point that needs to be made here. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. The end from an earthly vantage point. But here in chapter 8, verse 1. And also in verses 3 through 5. The end but from a heavenly vantage point. Chapter 8, verse 2 is the pen in the hinge. It is the verse upon which everything will turn from seals to trumpets. Is that clear to you guys? I nerd out about stuff like this and I really enjoy it because if we don't see the structure here, then we're going to misinterpret the book of Revelation. If we miss the structure... We're going to badly misinterpret the book of Revelation. And I think this book has been very badly interpreted in modern times. So now here is where things transition from a technical consideration of the structure of the book of Revelation to the practical. That is what you want ultimately. The practical. So if you're interested in the structure, you've been locked in. But if not, you've probably been spacing out for the last 15 minutes or so. It's time to come back. What I want you to see is that at the heart of this text is the truth that God hears the prayers of his people who are on earth. Is that not encouraging to you, brothers and sisters in Christ? That God hears the prayers of his people who are on earth. This is true always and in every circumstance, of course. If you belong to Christ, if you are praying in his name, coming to the Father through him, he hears your prayers. He hears your prayers in good times. He also hears your prayers in in bad times, in difficult times, times of tribulation. This truth is found throughout the scriptures, isn't it? God's people are always and always have been people of of prayer. They commune with God through prayer. This very truth was actually symbolized beautifully under the old covenant in the design of the tabernacle and later the temple in that magnificent structure, there were two main parts inside of it, at least the holy place and the most holy place. And there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place into that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolized God's footstool. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool, says the Lord. The Holy of Holies would be entered into only once a year by the high priest, right? And and, 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 Blood would be sprinkled upon uh, the the covenant there symbolizing the need for atonement. But outside the curtain, on just the other side in the the holy place, there was this thing called the altar of incense. Priests would regularly offer up incense on this altar and what would happen except that the incense would burn and the smoke from it would rise up and it would eventually permeate even into the most holy place. What do you think was being symbolized by all of that as the worshiper observed it? Except this truth that as we pray, as we pray, our prayers do indeed rise and ascend into the very presence of God. He hears our prayers. That is the thing symbolized there in the design of the tabernacle and later the more permanent temple. It's a visible reminder that when God's people pray, their prayers do indeed reach His ears. I want you to remember also, brothers and sisters, that Jesus the Christ prayed, didn't He? Though he was the God-man, he prayed. In his humanity, he cried out to his Father often. He would often withdraw to desolate places to pray, Luke five sixteen. And didn't he teach his disciples to pray? He did not say, if you pray, but when. It was assumed by him that we would be people of prayer. And when you pray, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Where is our Father? He is seated on the throne in heaven, and we are to pray Hallowed be your name, Matthew 6, 9. Paul urges believers to pray also. Rejoice always, he says. Paul was a man who knew what it was to experience trial and tribulation. He knew what it was to be persecuted. And yet, our brother Paul, when he is writing to the Thessalonians, says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. This does not mean that the only thing you are ever to do is to pray and nothing else, but that you are to pray constantly and repetitively. Never stop praying. Pray again and again and again and again. Give thanks in all circumstances, he says. Our prayers are to be marked by thanksgiving. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you want to know the will of God for you? God's will for your life? Well, one thing you should know is that His will for you is that you would pray without ceasing, rejoicing in prayer, giving thanks to God in prayer. James says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. By the way, what is James saying here except this, that when we sing together as a congregation and when we sing as individuals, songs that are spiritual songs, what we are really doing is praying. That is what we are doing when we are singing, by the way. We are we are praying to God as a congregation in our congregational singing, but we are praying in the form of, of song. Is anyone among you sick? He goes on. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What is the point that James is making here? Your life, your Christian life, is to be marked by constant prayer. Are you going through difficulty? Pray. Are you going through good times and are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. (laughs) In every circumstance, pray. And God is going to work in our lives. Whatever he is going to do, he is going to do it through the prayers of his people. For the prayers of his people um, are the way that God has determined to work through us. They are a means of grace. The writer of the Hebrews says it this way, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Here in Revelation 8, those truths that are so clearly stated elsewhere in the scriptures are dramatized before our very eyes. That's how the book of Revelation functions. It takes things that are clearly stated elsewhere, and and it gives the same truth to us, but in visual form. And this is what John saw. An angel came and stood at the altar. Do you notice that the the, the, the language here, everything should cause us to think of heavenly temple. Heavenly temple, heavenly tabernacle, right? Right. When the earthly one was built, it was built according to the pattern that was shown to Moses in heaven. And so we are to imagine not earthly, but heavenly temple here with a heavenly altar. And this angel, this angelic being, takes a golden censer. He's given much incense and he offers with the prayers of the saints this incense on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Isn't it a beautiful image here? It's said to us elsewhere in the scriptures that we are to be a people of prayer, but here we're given a glimpse into the heavenly realm and dramatized before us as this, is this very truth that your prayers do reach the ears of God when you pray them. I do not think that this is teaching that angels must always collect the prayers of the saints and deliver them to God in, the way, in this way with the burning of incense. Do you see what I'm saying here? I think that would be a hyper-literalistic hyper-literal- interpretation of this text. This is not showing us the mechanics of things as if our prayers go to the angels and then the angels kind of scoop them all up and bring them to God. Indeed there is only one mediator between God and man and who is he? The Lord Jesus Christ. But instead what is being communicated to us here in this drama and this vision is that there are indeed ministering spirits in heaven. Remember again that each of the seven churches were addressed through the angel of the church. So God uses angels to bring about his purposes. And that is the truth being communicated here. The real point is this. God hears your prayers. And so the question that must be asked is, are you praying? Are you praying? I want you to remember that these are persecuted people who are praying. In other words, the trials and tribulations that they are enduring in life should not, did not hinder their prayers, but motivated it. And it's, troubling to me when Christians, when they are experiencing trials and tribulations, begin to run away from God and and neglect prayer rather than running to Him and engage in it. I do understand that when difficulty comes there might be some challenges to our prayer life, that here we are struggling and we don't feel like praying all of a sudden. Perhaps we feel uh, neglected by God as if He is distant from us. Perhaps we feel as if he is far away. Perhaps we feel things like depression and anxiety because of our trouble. But it is in moments like that that we must choose to pray. I want you to read the Psalms when you can. And go to those Psalms where the psalmist is crying out to God in such an honest way. Saying, Lord, where are you? Have you abandoned me altogether? How long will I have to endure? So it is good in the midst of trial and tribulation to go to God in honest prayer. But go to him. Run to him. Bring his bring your desires to him he will hear your prayers you ought to run to him in times of difficulty and trouble though you might have to press through all sorts of emotional barriers to get there go to God in prayer and these are also people who believe in the sovereignty of God over all things who are praying in fact remember that the souls of the martyrs under the altar cried out to God oh sovereign Lord holy and true that is what they called him These are Christians who know that God is in control of all things, that he has ordained all things that will come to pass. They understand that. But they are not paralyzed by the theological conundrum that if God is sovereign over all, if he has ordained all things that will come to pass, then why pray? They're not paralyzed by that. Do you understand the conundrum that I'm referring to here? It's the one that sometimes Calvinists struggle with, those who believe in the sovereignty of God over all things and the fact that he has predetermined all things. Sometimes they struggle with the saying, then why pray? Well, we pray because God has commanded us to. We pray because we know that this is how God has determined to bring about his purposes through the prayers of his people. Do not be paralyzed by this, but run to the Father who is in heaven and pour out your heart before him. These pray because they are God's people. And they, they know that God has determined to work through the prayers of his people. But notice also that their prayers seem to be a particular kind of prayer. Their prayers for vindication and retribution being offered up to God. That's what kind of prayer it is. The reason I say this is because it is of the way that God responds. So here this angel brings the incense to the altar... And offers it up with the prayers of the saints. And the immediate response is to take coals from the altar. And to throw it onto the earth. And so in other words here are prayers for retribution. And here is the retribution in response to it. It fits perfectly with the context. Now here is the question that we might ask. Should Christians pray that the wicked be judged? Should we pray in that way? That the wicked be judged? I want you to remember Christ's words to his followers. For example... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And so when we read Christ's words here in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, we are actually reminded that Christians should pray for the salvation of their enemies, shouldn't we? Here there is someone who is persecuting you, treating you wrongly. How should you pray for them? Well, you had better pray for their good, for their salvation, that God would would bring them to Christ. Pray for your enemies. But the scriptures also provide us with examples of people praying for vindication. Remember again the prayer of the martyrs under the altar of Revelation 6. They cried out, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And listen to the words of the psalmist too. This is from Psalm 94. And there are many psalms like this. O Lord... God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Can the wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, says the psalmist. And my God, the rock of my refuge, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Psalm 94. And so what I want you to see is that these two principles really are not contrary to one another. Is it not possible to pray all at once, Lord, have mercy upon my enemy. Have mercy upon my enemy. Bring my persecutor to repentance and to salvation in Christ Jesus. Is it not possible to pray that and at the same time to say, Lord, you know my suffering and my desire is that you will make all things right in the end. That you will Vindicate me and that you will bring recompense upon the unjust throughout the world. Indeed, the scriptures compel us to pray in this multifaceted way. I want you to remember that Paul in Romans twelve nineteen says this to the Christian. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the, contrary, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what are we to do to our enemy who is hungry? Feed him. If he is thirsty, what are we to do for our thirsty enemy? Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be e- do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? good romans twelve nine through 21 i believe it is prayer that enables us to do this very thing it is the prayer lord make it right in the end and i know that you will that frees us from feeling as if it is our job to take vengeance upon our enemies that is god's job And we are to give that to him in prayer. And having done so, we are to be free to show love to our enemies. To give them water when they are thirsty and food when they are hungry. Praying always for the salvation of their souls. So the two things are not contrary to one another. We are to pray in this multifaceted way. The point is this. God will one day answer the prayers of his people for justice. And he will do it in two ways. He will one day judge fully and finally... This passage is very clear about that. But until then, he will judge constantly. That is, partially and perpetually. Do you know what I mean by that? That God will judge in the end, but he is always judging? Even as men and women live on this earth? Um, I think actually, this is why verse 2 is where it is. And the trumpets the trumpets are mentioned here, sandwiched in between two images of the final judgment. The seven angels are given seven trumpets. I think it is a reminder here that God will answer the prayers of his people in two ways, both by pouring out wrath on that last day, as is depicted in verse 1 and verses 3 through 5, and as was depicted in seal 6, true. But also, he will answer the prayers of his people for retribution in another way, constantly. And that is the very thing that the, seven, the, the, the first six of seven trumpets will describe. That cycle, the, the trumpet cycle, is going to describe to us how God is able to, with precision, even in this age, bring judgment upon the wicked and yet protect the righteous. I don't know if you've ever seen this, actually. I, th- I don't know if as a pastor I have more of a view to this than others do. But I've seen it. God has a way of judging people for their sin now. Oftentimes it's by God simply giving people over to their sin. Right? Well, Do you want to go in that direction? Then go in that direction and see. See how it is. And you see their life just unravel. I think oftentimes the mercy of God is in that too because God is bringing those people to a state of true humility and brokenness. I've seen God's partial and perpetual judgments worked out right before my eyes sometimes God acts I think in even more drastic ways you know like he did with Ananiah and Sapphira when they lied Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit was that the final judgment no it was partial but that sort of thing happens perpetually throughout the history of the world but there is encouragement here isn't there That God hears our prayers. He even hears our prayers for retribution. They they, they don't just evaporate into the sky, but they come to the ears of God. And when we pray, Lord, make it right in the end, he, He hears that and will act according to His will. And then having prayed a prayer for retribution upon an enemy, and also having prayed for their salvation according to the command of Christ, are you not then released from feeling as if it is your job to get back at that person who has wronged you in some way. You should be freed from it, having given it to the Lord. Lastly, understand that that when God does fully and finally judge, there will be silence in heaven. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour, Revelation 8.1. In the Old Testament, descriptions of God's judgments often include the mention of silence. We have to interpret this against the Old Testament backdrop. You saw it in the Zephaniah passage that I read at the start of the sermon, didn't you? I, I, I wanted you to, to notice this little line in there. It, it, it's so filled with um, you know, words about judgment. But right in the middle of it, in verse 7 of Zephaniah 1, this little phrase appears. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent, Zephaniah 1-7. Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Psalm 31-17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Psalm 31.17 When in Revelation 8.1 we read, When the Lamb of God opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. By no means are we to assume that the seventh seal is an empty seal, as many interpreters do. That's a very common interpretation. Seals one through six are full, and they have meaning to them. But seal seven is just empty, and the only thing it does is kind of transition us into the trumpet cycle. That's not true. Seal seven is a depiction of God's judgments from a heavenly vantage point. So why the silence, though? What is the meaning of it? Well, the meaning is this. The silence is the only proper response to the weightiness of the judgments of God as they are observed by man and angel from heaven above. When they consider That last day, when they consider the judgments of God, the only thing that they can do, the only thing appropriate, is for them to stand with their mouth covered, given the seriousness of the matter. I do wonder if you've ever been in a situation so weighty that there are no words. Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's a situation so somber uh, that to utter any word at all would seem totally inappropriate right? only silence will do and if you've ever experienced a silence like that you know the power of it it is moving though no words are spoken there, there is emotion there powerful emotion it is a powerful thing to hear silence like that I think it is interesting that every other heavenly scene described to us in the book of Revelation is filled with noise it really is When we're shown a view of heaven, how it will be, uh, you know, throughout the book of Revelation, what's going on except angels and men are just crying out and celebrating the salvation earned by Christ, right? The salvation given to them by God, I mean, it, it is a ruckus in heaven. That is how things are typically, but here, there's just silence. There's only silence, and I think it's so important to notice The saints in heaven and on earth have been crying out to God, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They've been crying out for that. But when that day comes, do they celebrate? They do not celebrate. They celebrate the salvation earned by Christ indeed. But when it comes to the judgment of the wicked, they do not celebrate. Rather, they only cover their mouths and remain silent. Certainly they know in their hearts that the judgment of God is right and true. But no child of God would ever take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you see that? The judgments of God are at once terrible and yet perfectly right and true and just. I wonder, do you long for that day? Do you long for it? Do you long for the day... When Christ returns and God pours out his wrath upon the unjust. My hope, actually, is that you would have mixed feelings about it. I think it is right to have mixed feelings about the thought of that day. For it will be the day that the Lord sets all things right and makes all things new. Thinking of that, we should rejoice but it will also be the day where the opportunity for men and women, boys and girls, to come to salvation is no longer. It is the day of, of, ju- of, of, of judgment, the day of wrath. For the child of God, the second coming of Christ, is pure gospel, isn't it? It's pure good news. But for those not in Christ, it is pure law. It is the day when they will be judged by the law. The law which no man has kept except one. Christ Jesus our Lord let us pray father in heaven we do thank you for this vision that you have set before us we thank you that it has the ability to bring a sense of sobriety to our minds and to our hearts Lord, it is true as we walk in this world, we do long to see the consummation. We long to see the new heavens and the earth, all things made new where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, where you will set all things right. Lord, come quickly. We long for that. Lord, at the same time, we tremble at the thought of men and women coming under your judgment because they do not know Christ and because they have so sinned against you. So, Lord, in that respect, we pray for your delay, that you would give us more time, Lord, to... Proclaim your gospel throughout the world. Lord, I pray that we would be diligent. That we would be people of prayer, as you have called us to be. And that we would be active concerning the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray for each soul here that we all would be prepared to meet you on that last day. So that we might stand. We know it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray that you would pour out your spirit and that you would bring many to salvation, to the glory of your name. May many come to believe upon Christ, calling him Lord, and thus be clothed in white, so that they might stand before you in glory. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.